scripture says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he set messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, and birds have the air Uh, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me, but he said, Lord, let me go first, uh, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, uh, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is God's word. If you remember last summer, we began a journey uh, through the gospel of Luke. And we paused that journey when we got to the Christmas season, when we got to the season of Advent. And then in January, we walked through the book of Ecclesiastes. And now uh, we are jumping back into this incredible gospel account of Luke. And we're doing so at a time in the book where there's this real turning point. We're going to see that here in just a second. But we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke uh, all the way up until the fall. And then we'll we'll press pause one last time and enter into a different passage of the Bible. And then it's our hope, Lord willing, that next January we'll go into our final season in the Gospel of Luke. And it should be a really rich and meaningful time. I'm really excited. I hope you are as well. Uh, But if you can remember back in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, you see that Luke writes this gospel account to a man named Theophilus. You can just call him Theo if you want, probably, right? He writes this orderly account so that he and so that we could be certain concerning the things that we have been taught about Jesus, right? Absolutely, right? They can be certain. Uh, but to be certain about the things taught about Jesus. So do you realize that the point of the gospel of Luke is that you would be certain about who Jesus is and what he's done? That's the goal of this gospel. I mean, what a breath of fresh air in a world filled with the smoke of uncertainty. Right? Certainty is a very powerful thing because it helps you put the next foot in front of the other one, Right? Right? When you're in these situations in your life where you're like, I don't know about this thing, right? I, I don't know about this. I can't control this, right? Everything feels uncertain at times. You know, I don't know this, but I do know this about Jesus. I don't know what to do here, but I do know I need to lean into this. Right? The Gospel of Luke helps us to be certain about Jesus, about who we are, and about what our purpose is in this world, Right? Here's the big idea that Luke is trying to communicate to us today. He's trying to communicate to us this, that the way to heaven is a road through Jerusalem, which is unavoidably the way of the cross. That's what we're seeing here in these passages this morning, that the way to heaven is a road through Jerusalem, 
which is unavoidably the way of the cross, the way of the cross. This way is not the way of the world, and guys, it is so radically different than most everything you'll encounter in this life, and it'll be disorienting at times. I imagine today's passage is going to be disorienting. On September 3rd, um, 1967, Sweden experienced the largest logistical nightmare in their nation's history. Uh, There should be a photo for you here on the screen. Uh, This was taken on what is called H Day, the letter H Day. It was a day that Sweden changed the side of the road that they drove on. Right? It's remarkable. They transitioned on that day in 1967, so you've been driving on the left side your whole life, you wake up and all of a sudden one day we got to drive on the other side of the road, right? They went from the left to the right side, okay? Just chaos, right, as you can imagine. This is just one photo amongst many that you can find out there. But I think this picture really depicts for us how we often feel when we come to a passage like ours this morning. As we encounter the living God in Jesus Christ and our lives get turned upside down, sometimes overnight, We make a 180 in our repenting and our living. In many days, we find ourselves driving on the side of the road of the world. And Jesus comes along and he shows us a whole new way. And we have this constant drift in our lives. We wake up seeking to follow him, but it feels so foreign to the ways that we're used to living in this world. And so here, this is exactly what we're seeing. That the way to heaven is a road through Jerusalem which is unavoidably the way of the cross. And that is going to feel foreign to you. Guys, notice here we're at a turning point in Luke's gospel. It's it's a clear indicator here in verse 51. If you look there, what does it say? When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I mean, there's a lot being said here in this one line. I mean, this phrase drew near literally means completed time. It's signaling to us that the time of Jesus' life and ministry was coming to an end, and he knew it was. But what is it that he sees at the end, right? What is it that he sees at the end? It's it's for him to be taken up, it says there in verse 51. You see that? Well, that is exactly a reference to the day when Jesus would ascend to heaven on the other side of the grave. He would ascend as king over all things. Guys, this is a reference to his reigning, Then notice, though, that it says that Jesus, knowing that this time was coming to a close, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. This is talking about Jesus' resoluteness, his determined being, his determined aim of going to Jerusalem to do what? It's to die. That's right. This is his mission. He was born to die. And the reason that he died was so that he would be raised. And the reason that he would be raised is so that he would reign. This is what our passage is beginning to show us. It's moving from black and white into color a bit. And because this is Jesus' mission, our passage tells us that we should expect two things in light of it. First of all, you'll see in verses 51 to 56, because the emphasis really is on the disciples, we should expect to be rebuked by Jesus from time to time at least. We need to expect that. And number two, we need to expect that following Jesus is going to cost us everything. But it's going to be worth it. So let's look 
51 through 56, let's expect to be rebuked, right? You guys excited or what? Here we go. 52, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. So they're journeying. Where are they? They're in Samaria, right? You think of John chapter 4, the woman at the well, Jesus in Samaria. He's been here before, right? But this time it's different. This is the first time Luke actually mentions the Samaritans. And we notice here and in other parts of the Bible that the Samaritans and the Jews do not like each other. Right? If you've been in the Bible for any length of time, you've probably heard that. Right? The Samaritans were people who intermarried with other nations. So they intermarried with pagans, so to speak, right? Non-Jewish people. And they did so during the intertestamental period in between your Old and New Testament timelines. Right? And in the eyes of the Jews, they had corrupted the purity of the Jewish faith. So these Samaritan people, they were multiracial biologically, and they were multiracial theologically, so to speak. They had wedded their Jewish faith with other traditions, and so there was a lot of hostility here between these two groups. Okay? But look down in verse 53 and notice how the Samaritans treated Jesus. It's a little bit different right, than the woman at the well story. They didn't welcome him, did they? But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem, right? They reject Jesus. There's no in-between here. Just because it says the people did not receive him doesn't mean they nicely rejected him. No, this is full-blown rejection. Like if I came up to you and I offered you a glass of lemonade and you did not receive my lemonade, right? You would be doing what? rejecting my lemonade, right? I don't know why you would do that on a day like today, but nonetheless, you would be rejecting the lemonade. Same idea, right? They did not receive Jesus. They rejected him. Why? What does it say? Because his face was set towards Jerusalem. This might not make sense to us. I mean, I doubt maybe you've ever rejected someone because of where they were traveling to. Have you ever done that? If you have, I have questions, right? So what's happening here? Well, the reason is that Jerusalem was the central place of worship for the Jewish people. And so by Jesus heading there, he's saying to this Samaritan village that Jerusalem is this believed place of the central place of worship. That for the Jewish people, that is the central place of worship. And so the Samaritans, what they had done is they had built their own central place, right? On Mount Gerizim. They hated Jerusalem because other people thought that was the central place of worship. And the Samaritans said, no, we have our own holy place, the true holy place. And so in a sense, if you were passing through saying, I'm going to Jerusalem, you're saying your place is not the holy place. This would be a slap in the face. Again, this is hard for us to, to imagine. I, so imagine this maybe on a, in a much less significant way. Just imagine that Gresham, and more likely we could say Portland, was known as having the best coffee in the world, okay? I wish it were true of Gresham. Like, we can just imagine here for a second, right? That Gresham had the best coffee in the world, okay? Imagine we all universally believed that. All of us in this room are really proud of that. I live in Gresham, the best coffee in the world, right? We all just had this conviction, right? And then imagine you're down at the gas station, someone's pumping gas, and you say, oh, you're from out of town, where are you headed? And they said to you, oh, I'm headed to the Bay Area, right? Because I hear they have the best coffee in the world. You might say to them, oh, no, no, you're wrong, it's here. 
this is where the best coffee is. And if they said to you, no, it's not, it's in the Bay Area, you are going to feel what? Insulted, right? Maybe on a very mild level, but nonetheless, you get the idea. If you have a conviction about something and someone says that's not true and you've tied your identity to that, it's a slap in the face, right? And so even more so, the more serious the issue, the greater the offense. That's exactly what's happening here. Do you see this rejection? The Samaritans are essentially saying Jesus isn't our Messiah because if he was, he would be staying. What happens next? What do the disciples do? Verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Man, there is a reason why Jesus gave James and John the nickname Sons of Thunder, right? Case in point, right here. I mean, you imagine these, these two guys must have been thinking of the story of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1 when, when fire actually came down twice at the request of Elijah to kill the messengers of Ahaziah, king of Samaria, who had rejected the God of Israel and turned to the God of Ekron. So you have the king of Samaria in that story who rejects God and Elijah has fire come down in judgment against this king's messengers. So their point isn't way out of context or completely irrational in the Jewish mind, okay? But think about it. These guys, James and John, they are zealous, right? I mean, they love Jesus, don't they? I mean, they have a zealous response here. I imagine they think that they're impressing Jesus, but they don't understand the nature and the quality of Jesus' mission, do they? I mean, you see James and John, what do they want to do? Well, in a certain sense, they want to bypass Jerusalem, don't they? They, they want glory. They don't want the road to Jerusalem because that road is a road of suffering. What do they want? Jesus, Show your glory. Send fire down. Judge these people for rejecting you. Let's see the glory. And Jesus says, that's not my mission. Right? Well, what does Jesus say in response to their zeal? Does he say, oh, thanks, guys. Yeah, forget them, right? Appreciate you guys being in my corner. Not even close. His response comes as a shock and seemingly out of a different world. Right? Because what does he say in verse 55? He turned and rebuked them. You're meant to see like the, the picture of that. Jesus turns. He stops. He rebukes them. Right? He tells them to turn. Right? Turn from their ways. He turns to tell them to turn. Right? I mean, what does it mean for Jesus to rebuke you? Well, it means for Jesus to say, you are out of alignment with me, right? You don't understand who I am and what I'm about here. You're not living into that. We see here in Jesus a radically trying to drive on the opposite side of the road sort of kind of response to rejection, right? This is disorienting, isn't it? I mean, because how do you and I respond to rejection? How do we respond to people who are against us, not for us, I mean, how do you feel, even in your responses, if you could make them to people who reject Jesus? Right? If you could know that you could say it and nothing bad would happen to you, if you, if you really were in the, you know, could be honest with somebody, 
Well, you might not pray that fire would fall from heaven on them. Maybe. I mean, you might not even pray at all. But our thoughts don't often run to what Christ's do. I mean, I'm guessing you respond often like I do. I want them to pay, right? I want to get back. I want them to know that they're wrong, right? But these disciples here, they're thinking, man, we've seen Jesus' power. We've seen his glory. If you can remember back to last fall, we just saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration, these guys did. And who appears on the mountain with him? Elijah. They're like, we remember the story about Elijah. Jesus, you're even more glorious because Elijah disappeared and we heard that voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Right? We've seen the glory of Jesus. So these disciples are thinking, he's better than Elijah. Let's do this thing. Let's display your glory. But that's not the glory Jesus is trying to display here. Guys, if we hit the rewind button and we go back to Luke chapter 6 and we press pause for a second, you find Jesus saying these words to his followers in the Sermon on the Plain. It should be up on the screen. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he, who? God is kind. God is kind to who? The nice people? The people who love him? He's kind to the ungrateful. He's kind to the evil. So be merciful even as your father is. As the picture is moving from black and white into color, when we press into this wondering why Jesus would rebuke the disciples and not the Samaritans. I mean, why rebuke them? Right? Why not this punitive rejection of the Samaritans? Why would this be the response? Well, again, only if his mission that he has set his face to accomplish had something to do with it. So when we fast forward to the end of Luke, what do we see? We see Jesus hanging on a cross. And we see him praying. Praying for what? For the Father to get him off the cross? Is he praying for fire to come down and consume the people that are rejecting him? No, we see him hanging there and praying for his enemies. To do what? To stop? No, to be forgiven. And in praying for their forgiveness, Jesus experiences what? He experiences the fire of God's judgment on himself. He says, let the fire fall on me. So the fire of the Holy Spirit could fall in transforming grace on others. As we find Jesus living out what he called us back into in chapter 6 when he told us to love his enemies. So if we want to follow Jesus, we should expect to be rebuked by him. Because I'm used to driving on the other side of the road. I don't know about you. Right? This isn't my normal knee-jerk reactions to things like rejection. Right, but why does he call us into this? Why does he care so much about how we treat other people who reject us and ultimately reject him? Well, it's because he cares that we image him. If we're going to follow him, if our name is going to be written on us, then we must image him. And therefore, I should expect to be rebuked from time to time. I've been thinking about this all day. I mean, when was the last time 
you felt rebuked by Jesus. I've been trying to think about that in my own life. Finally, we should expect following Jesus to cost us everything. Cost us everything. Look in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another, he said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So so we have these three different people who interact with Jesus. We don't know their names. We have no idea what effect Jesus' words had on them. But these words of Jesus are meant to do a, a really healthy surgery on our own hearts this morning. And the surgery that God is doing is to try to expose us for the costliness of following him, but the worthwhileness of that at the same time. And so there's three different things that we see that we're going to be a cost to us. And in verses 57 and 58 in this first person, we see that following Jesus is going to cost me to give up my old home, to give up my old understanding of home. Uh, This first offer to follow Jesus by this person, it's an offer that's unconditional. Do you see that? What does he say? I will follow you wherever you go. That's a good offer, right? That's a great offer. I mean, that's a better response than a lot of responses that we've seen to Jesus. So why would Jesus hear such an amazing promise and respond to this person in this way? Well, Jesus wants them to count the cost, right? Because following him changes our understanding of home. He says even foxes have homes. Birds have beds, right? But Jesus' life and mission is such that he does not have one. I mean, this is hard because there's a basic assumption in our society that we will build a home for ourselves, right? We're all trying to establish a home here in this Gresham area, aren't we? Right? In fact, a healthy society is often measured by the ability of people to settle down and to find a life of their own choosing in a city. Right? So if animals have this here in Gresham, if you go outside and you see the birds and Maybe a fox, I don't know. Do we have foxes here? I haven't seen one yet, right? But if we had these animals running around Gresham, you go, well, they have a place. Why shouldn't I? It should be on the screen, but C.S. Lewis says in his screw tape letters, prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. his increasing reputation, his widening circles of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing an agreeable work, build in him a sense of being at home on earth, which is just what we want. If you know Screwtape Letters is, is this fictitious story about Satan and demons trying to tempt Christians away from the world. That's what it means, it's just what we want. So Jesus calls us to follow him down the road of suffering to our new home, right? Heaven, the place Jesus is going to ascend to. And so we must ask the question this morning of our own lives and the surgery of our own hearts, where is home for me? Where is your home? 
If you want to know what home is, there's a lot of questions that you could ask yourself to discern that. You can kind of look maybe for places that you feel most alive. You can look for the place that you feel most like yourself, where your guard sort of comes down, right? Where, where you can rest, you can put your feet up, right? Maybe where you linger most. But I think more than anything, you can discern where you really believe your home is by considering where you miss the most when you're not there. When you're not there, where do you, what do you miss? What is it that you miss? Here, if the question is to follow Jesus, and essentially he's saying, I'm home. The question that remains, is Jesus my home? When I have those days and I wander from him, do I, do I miss him? Do I miss him? Just like if this person would have followed Jesus, Jesus would be their home, right? Secondly, we see that this will cost me my old priorities. It'll cost me my old priorities. In verses 59 and 60, we see this. We see Jesus call out for this other person to follow him, but notice the person's response. What does he say? Lord, let me first go. Let me first go and do this. I mean, it seems like a reasonable request because what's his request? He wants to be a good family member, doesn't he? I mean, burying a family member was a priority in Judaism. And so what is being said here, most people believe, is that this person's request was not saying, it'll just take me a day. He's not saying, I just need a week of bereavement or something. He's saying, I need a year. Because in Judaism, you'd have a funeral, you'd bury the body, the body would decompose some, and then a year later, you'd go dig up the bones, you'd put them in a box, and you would bury the box. Right? And so essentially, this person's saying to Jesus, I need a year. Give me a year. Right? The point is not so much in the details because Jesus is making a point out of this person. Right? Jesus isn't saying that taking care of your family is a bad thing. Right? We shouldn't isolate this scripture you know, from the rest of the Bible and get your understanding of how you should view your family, right? As if you think the Bible's telling you not to honor your parents, but abandon your parents, right? Don't, Jesus isn't telling you to abandon your parents, okay? Um, so please don't, don't receive it that way. The point is that if we follow Jesus, guys, there will be times where our following will require us to make choices that are at odds with other people's expectations in this world. And our name may even be discredited because of it. Why? Because Jesus reorders our priorities. So here, Jesus is saying, I must have first place. First place. What's the greater priority? He tells him to do what? To, to let the dead bury their own dead. And instead do what? To go out and announce to everyone, maybe even the village that just rejected him to go announce to everybody that the king has arrived. Proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. That the king has arrived and new life is to be had under the rule of Jesus and in his salvation. All right, so more important than caring for the dead is preaching this offer of life. That's what he's calling him into. So our priorities are really challenged here because if Jesus were to say to us this morning, or this evening, whatever time of day this is anymore, right? Gosh, it's crazy. If Jesus were to say to you in this hour, follow me, follow me, he's saying that to you, what would you say to him? Is there anything that you're like, give me a year, 
I need a year. Once this season passes, yes, I'm in. Once I get this sorted out, I'll follow. Those can be great things, you guys. Wonderful things. Those aren't first things. If Jesus says to you, follow me, what is it that you would say, yes, Lord, but let me first fill in the blank? What comes to your mind? What, where's the gravitational pull in your life? The last thing it'll cost you, guys, it'll cost you your old life. It'll cost you your old life. Verse 61 to 62, let's read that one again. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Notice that this person's offer to follow Jesus has a condition, doesn't it? I will follow you, Lord, but, but, let me say goodbye to those at my home. The the image here is a farming image. In farming, they would use a handheld plow. It was light, wooden, had an iron point to it, right? And these plows would dig these trenches. And the person plowing, they would have to keep their eye on a far distant set point and fixate on it. Because if they didn't fixate on it, the, the, the trench they would be digging would be really crooked. They would do a bad job in their farming, right? They, they didn't want the, that line to be crooked, I don't know how many of you have ever done this before. Probably not very many. Some of you are probably cool and have. I don't know. But maybe a more fitting analogy would be riding your bike. You ever riding your bike with somebody and you're riding it and all of a sudden you're like looking back to see how everyone else is doing because you're so cool and so far ahead, right? And so what do you do? You kind of turn around to see and what happens? You drift, don't you? You drift. It's really hard to stay straight, isn't it? Right? That's the exact idea here. Looking back, it causes us to drift. What is Jesus calling you into here? A whole new vision. A whole new vision. And if you and I desire to follow him, yet we look back, we will drift off the path. Guys, this is not merely talking about our success in following Jesus as a disciple and doing his kingdom work. It definitely includes that. This is actually talking about our heart. And the reason for that is is because this moment here from Jesus, this teaching of Jesus, this response of Jesus reminds us of the story in Genesis 19. What happened in that story? Fire fell from heaven and God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember that? But, but Abraham prayed, interceded that Lot and his family would be saved. And as Lot and his family are leaving the city, God says, do not look back. And very famously, what happens? Lot's wife looks back as she turns to a pillar of salt. Crazy story, right? Incredible. She looks back. But why does she look back? Well, she doesn't look back like you and I would slow down on the freeway to look at a crash scene, right? It's not like rubbernecking sort of looking back like, wow, what's happening to the city behind me? This is a whole different kind of looking back. I believe this should be on the screen for you, but J.C. Ryle says, those who look back like Lot's wife, want to go back. Looking back means I want to go back. She looks back not because she's interested to see what's happening, but because her heart is there. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That's the drift he's talking about. 
It is impossible to follow Jesus. It is impossible to serve him, you guys, with a divided heart. If we're looking back to anything in this world, he says, we are not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Right? What does that even mean to be fit for the kingdom? Well, to be fit literally means to be suitable or meeting adequate standards for a purpose. That's what it means to be fit. So maybe this is helpful, but imagine I, I was running this week and I ran a whole mile, okay, without stopping. Okay, I'm very proud of myself. And imagine you saw me running and I stopped and I was puking and I was sick and I was miserable and you came over to me and you said, hey, Josh, are you okay? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just training because tomorrow morning I'm going to run a marathon, right? If you were nice and honest enough, you might say to me, that's very commendable, Josh, right? I mean, running a marathon is a really good thing, but I don't think you're fit to run a marathon, right? You can look at me and assume, even if you had never run a marathon before, that I'm not suitable. I'm not meeting adequate standards for the purpose of running 26.2 miles in the morning unless I have a death wish, right? That's just not going to go well. In the same way, Jesus is saying that a person wanting to go home, a person that wants to live the life that they were called out of, is not fit for gospel work any more than a person looking behind him is fit to be a good farmer. In other words, Jesus does not share his throne. His call is costly because it is not only a call to never go back, it's a call to not even look back, you guys. And when we look back, we're, we're, we're putting something first. When we think of something else as home, that's what we're doing. When we respond to rejection, right, with the hope of some sort of punitive judgment against somebody who's wronged us, we realize in these moments when we won't give these things up, when we're driving on the wrong side of the road again, we realize that we want the scenic route to heaven. Yet the road of discipleship is traveled through Jerusalem. That's the road that we're on. And so Jesus, this is the road he traveled, isn't it? But the road Jesus took to his throne was a road of loss, wasn't it? It was a road of loss that you, this evening, could experience true gain. The road Jesus took was a road of sojourning so that you could finally come running home to your true home into the arms of your father. The road that Jesus took was a road of rejection so you could finally be received by God. The road that Jesus took was a road of shame so that your shame could be lifted and you could experience this eternal, never-ending joy. The road that Jesus took was a road of suffering. Not that we wouldn't suffer, though. So that we, too, would be conformed to his image through taking that same road. Guys, this is a road that we now, too, walk down. And yes, we follow Jesus as we do it, and we realize that in our following him, he's right there with us. As if we want to follow Jesus, there's not a scenic route. I'm sorry to tell you. But he will walk it with us. And he has gone before us. And we are called to walk it together. 
I wonder if you've ever seen the Ice Age movies. Have you guys seen the Ice Age movies? In Ice Age 2, if you've never even seen these, you've probably seen a trailer before. There's, there's one part of the movie, I think, that made me think of a passage like this. If you've seen the movie or even a preview, like I said, you're familiar with the squirrel, right? Who's always trying to obtain this acorn nut or something like that. I don't know why, but he really wants this acorn. And he goes through all these crazy things along the way to try to obtain that acorn. But towards the end of the movie, the squirrel has a near-death experience and he finds himself at the gates of squirrel heaven, okay? A place where the streets are paved with acorns, right? Nonetheless, he's smiling, he's dancing, he's gathering up all the acorns, right? He feels more at home than he's ever felt before back in the old Ice Age world, right? And then he sees it like the acorn of all acorns, like the mother load of acorns. And he tries to obtain this acorn. And just as he's about to grasp this giant acorn, someone back in the other world, the Ice Age world, gives him mouth to mouth and brings him back to life, right? He was very unhappy, very unhappy. And do you know what? He will never again feel at home in that world because he's tasted another one. He's tasted something far better. And that's the strange thing about being a Christian, you guys. We, we often work very hard at trying to fit into this world. We tried really hard many days, don't we? Trying to belong here. We're like the squirrel in Ice Age. Once we've tasted the goodness of God, once we've seen the suffering of Jesus and we realize that was for me, I never want to fit in again. That's why the Bible says it. If you follow Christ, you're a foreigner. You're a stranger in this world. Why? Because Christians are people who come to the terms with the truth that we are now in the world, but we will never fit into it. We long for another one. It should be on the screen, but Hebrews 11, when it describes this great hall of faith, all these people who followed Christ, this is what it talks about with them. It says they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, right, the old Ice Age place, right, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's what it's all about, you guys. It's costly, but it's worth it. It takes some getting used to. By the Spirit of God, we get there. I just want to challenge you guys this evening, if, if following Jesus, to you as a Christian, if following Jesus feels like what you would always be doing already, then maybe we're not following him. If we're following him, we're like, yeah, I'd already be doing this, no matter what. If it feels no cost to me, I have to come to grips with maybe he's rebuking me tonight. Maybe. Let me ask you, how has following Jesus been costly in your life? I'm thinking about that. 
Has Jesus changed your heart towards those who reject you and reject him? Is there any conditions you're putting on Jesus in terms of following him? Where is your home? What do you miss? What are you looking back to? What do we need to travel the road to Jerusalem with Jesus, you guys? We need tender mercy, and we need a heart that says goodbye to the world. So we follow him today. If you never have, I invite you to do that. You can put your faith in him. You could start tonight. And maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I miss him. I miss home. Well, come home. The road traveled leads through Jerusalem, you guys, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Father God, I pray this evening that you would open our ears, God, that you would open our eyes, you would soften our hearts. Maybe we're wondering when's the last time we even heard those words, follow me. God, I pray we'd hear those words tonight. And I pray we wouldn't give you any conditions on that. I pray we would just let it all go and, and follow you. Come what may, knowing you're worth it. God, teach us to long for our heavenly home with you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.